What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, I have with me Steve Hall. Steve is the founder of Revive Stronger, which is an online coaching and educational content provider. Our main topic today is reps in reserve. We talk about what it is and how it might differ from RPE. We talk about failure training, why you might not want to go to failure all the time, but also what the benefits of going to failure might be and how to use it. Last, we talk about some common misconceptions around training with RIR because there are definitely some big ones. Our second topic of the day is how to set up your mesocycle. Steve breaks down his methods for his clients, which I'll say are pretty similar to how I would go about it for many hypertrophy clients. Now, he'll be the first one to say, this is not the only way to set up a mesocycle, but it is a smart way that is gonna get you some great results and has some good logical backing. And last, we talk about some common questions that we get from our clients who are new to this style of programming and progression. So if that's you and you're somebody who's you know following along that hasn't necessarily been exposed to this, I would definitely listen to that. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. Steve, what's going on, man? Happy to have you. Hey, Jordan. So yeah, I was just, we're just speaking off air and saying how I have, I, I, I don't know if it's like I have COVID-19 kind of feels a bit, I feel a bit special and like, oh, I've actually, I've got the thing that everyone's been talking about for the past however long, but I'm now a weekend. So feeling like I've got through the worst of it, um, but it wasn't fun for a few days, but I'm glad that I can be here talking to you, Jordan. And I think you're free of the COVID. <laughs> yeah, we got our second vaccine and and just a small, I suppose, a small awesome. taste of what a small taste of what you're what you're going through. Obviously, yeah. um, has it been has it been you know I, I guess you know people have had varying levels of uh, an experience in terms of symptoms and stuff, but have yours been like pretty intense? So uh, it takes a lot for me not to go to the gym, and although I can't because you you're quarantining. I have gym equipment from home. Like there was just no way for about three days that I was even going to be able to touch a weight. And I'm like, one of the, you have to really force me to, to not train. So yeah, definitely. Like I, I said to you off air as well, for me, this is the worst kind of cold or illness I've experienced. That I can actually ever remember of my life, let alone my adult life. So I can really see how it's kind of, kicked a lot of people who aren't healthy who are older or who already have pre-existing like lung conditions easily see how that's really knocked them for six especially if they get a particularly bad strain of it i have no idea what if mine was bad or not bad i assume it wasn't terrible so yeah it's um i definitely respect covid a a lot after having actually experienced it myself yeah i'm glad that actually i don't think anyone in my close family um has had it so i'm actually in a weird way, I'm kind of glad it was me because I'm one of probably the better able people to deal with it. And I don't know if like kids to have to like deal with and stuff like that. So uh, I work from home, self-employed. So I'm, I'm kind of glad it was me in that sentence. Yeah, you're, you're uh, if anybody were best prepared to deal with this from a lifestyle perspective, but also from just like a health status perspective, it would be you. So that, yeah, I definitely agree with yeah. that. That's that's good. I would rather me than my, my parents, so to speak, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Cool. So <laughs> you got me up at 7 a.m. here, which is nice because you're over across the pond in the UK. So um, very, very thankful for that. But I've always seen you doing your podcasts and it must be really late in the evening if you're doing it with people in the US. So I appreciate you being here and, and us making it work. So thank you. No, it's uh, totally fine. And yeah, it's, it's just one of those time zones. Yeah. Podcasts. Sure. Uh, as a host, you sometimes have to get a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, it's different. I mean, USA like, dealing with clients and stuff, time zone, it's just like more of like, Oh, a couple of hours, but like, this is a big, this is like a big, like half a day right. jump. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself. But before that, I always like to tell my listeners kind of why I decided to have you on just because there's an <clears throat> there's a literal infinite amount of people that you could have on your podcast. Like why you? And so while this podcast is, it's literally titled Where Optimal Meets Practical, I think that you're probably in the business in terms of that spectrum of optimal versus practical. You're in that position where you're definitely in the business of doing things optimally, at least definitely for yourself and for a lot of your clients. Um, as a as a natural bodybuilder and you coach, I know you coach competitors, but I also know you coach, you know, uh, regular folk, gen pop as well. Um, but usually those people come to you for like optimal results. And so that's something that you're very close tied in for yourself and for your clients. And so I think you do a good job at finding that optimal practical balance, but maybe at a, you know, a part of the spectrum that's a little bit closer to that optimal side. And if this podcast stays true to its name, then I do want to have people on, you know, that are everywhere on that spectrum that can tell us about like, Hey, what would you do if time and lifestyle and responsibilities might not have been not, not might not be an issue. And we want to turn all the knobs versus, you know, all the way down to like, you know, people who are really trying to maximize like a, a regular, let's say more normal lifestyle. So really appreciate you coming on. I'm really excited for the chat, but let's give our listeners a little bit of an intro about who you are and how you got into this whole game. Cool. So yeah, I think, uh, you definitely got me right there in terms of for myself personally, I view myself as like an N equals one experiment. If I can do stuff like, like every coach hopefully is, has this kind of mentality of do it to myself first, if see how it goes, then maybe apply it to clients. So, uh, easy example is like this weighted vest where I'm wearing it for my kind of fat loss experiments, just to see kind of how practical is it? Uh, what are the kind of upsides downsides? I've already learned a bunch using it. So yeah, I definitely like to push myself very hard to try and do things as optimal as possible, just to see like, what are the, the benefits of that? Uh, what might be worth it? What, what might not be worth it? Um, and then some of my clients, like you said, are very optimal seeking. Some of them I actually try and talk them down from it because it's just, it's an inappropriate aim for them and they don't need it. It's kind of diminishing returns for a lot of the kind of the quote unquote optimal style of programming. So I really respect the kind of where optimal meets practical and having a good mix of both because that's, that's where the kind of dreams are made. Um, in terms of background myself. So um, I am the uh, founder of Revive Stronger. Um, it's an online coaching company, also a content producer, have our own podcast called uh, the Revive Stronger podcast, which I'm very blessed to be able to talk to some of the world's leading industry experts in kind of physique development, very centered around like fat, uh, fat loss, muscle gain, uh, contest prep, that sort of thing. I proportion my clients to competitors, maybe 25%. Um, but the majority of people I work with are just like people similar to myself, but don't want to get on stage in tiny pants. Uh, <laughs> so they're, the, they're the ones just aren't doing the kind of gnarly bit, the competitive bit, but they're bodybuilders and they have the lifestyle very much intact. Excellent. And, uh, I don't know how much of a background you want to go into like revive stronger, but, um, yeah, essentially that name comes from my personal background and what got me into bodybuilding in the first place where I had quite a bad head injury and uh, recovered from that and found bodybuilding as a way and a route to recover from that because uh, the head injury kind of caused a lot of problems for me that meant I couldn't be a social person and I lost a lot of muscle mass uh, and was just not in a very kind of confident place. And so I found bodybuilding and found ways of educating myself to make it work and was like, wow, I'm in the best shape of my life. I've just competed for the first time. And if I can take myself from a terrible health position to this, man, I can do this for others. And I, I want to, I want to share that because 
it was a, a kind of harsh learning curve at the start, which I, I'm sure you can agree with. You probably had similar experience. I think everyone does. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'd never, I knew that that name had come from, you had, ha- you had had a head injury. And so that's definitely an appropriate name. So yeah, yeah, good. For, I mean, that's, you know, I don't know if it's, it's always as extreme as something like that, but I do think that a lot of people find this as a, a route or an avenue to kind of express certain things. And whether it's like, somewhere to give effort or somewhere where I always found that for me, it was somewhere where it was, I guess, quote unquote fitness. It is something that you, you get out 100% of what you put in and it is, yeah, we have different genetics and yeah, there are things that are outside of your control, but so much of the outcome is in your control. And I always found that to be something unique, especially growing up, like just wasn't really enjoying, like I didn't really love school as much and didn't feel like I was really getting that out of it. I really didn't feel like I was getting that like 100% output of what I was putting in and started to feel like fitness was one of those things where I was like, hey, if I do the work, if I, you know, go in and hit the gym and do the nutrition side and the sleep side and the stress management side, like that's it. Like there's no like subjectivity to this, like you will get results. And so I definitely fell in love with it from that regard of like, maybe that's a, maybe that's exposing like a control freak side, but like it definitely is something where like it did feel like I was like, Hey, if I just do the work, it's on me and I can make it happen. Yeah. It's funny because control is one of the prime reasons I fell in love with bodybuilding because it was at a time I was like completely out of control of my body like my health, my well-being, everything was out of my control. I just, I couldn't do, my hormones were out of balance. Like I had various issues. I was on medication trying to recover from this thing, but I could go into the gym. I could lift the weights. I could fuel myself with various foods. Like you said, take the rest, take rest days, sleep. And I'd slowly improve and grow muscle. And I fell in love with that kind of control and progress that was down to me. Unlike other sports where it's like, you're only as good as your weakest player or whatever. Like it's a selfish endeavor that you can just own. And yeah, I love that each and every day. Cool. Awesome. Let's take a quick dive into our first topic today, which should kind of give us a, a, an arch for the rest of the conversation. We're going to talk about reps and reserve and kind of its application towards training and how it might differ from RPE and, you know, some common misconceptions with it. So why don't you just give a quick definition? I've talked about it on the podcast, so I'm, I'm assuming most listeners have a decent idea of what it is, but let's give a, dis- a, a little bit of a definition to it. So definition of RPE. RIR. And how it R-R-R, might, and okay. then we can do in the same vein, we could just say how, how might RIR differ from RPE? Cool. So RER stands for reps and reserve. And essentially uh, the easiest way to think about it is how many reps do you have left in the tank that are good quality repetitions uh, before like you fail a repetition. So a naught RER would be you have no more good reps left in the tank. So if you did a rep and you broke form, naught RER was like the rep before that. And then every rep back from that is another repetition in reserve. So these are good quality repetitions that you have left in the tank for various exercises. Uh, it's a form of relative uh, intensity. So it's kind of, uh, you have to perceive it yourself. It, it try it like one rep is objective, but subjectively kind of dis- discerned by the individual who's doing it. Uh, so it is something you have to learn and like, as you know, there's been studies on it and there are complications with the subjectivity that's involved with it. So it's something like a lot of tools in life. The more you use it, the better you get at it and the more uh, applicable it can be. But even if people don't necessarily program with a relative intensity, most bodybuilders out there, uh, most people will work with reps and reserve, even if they're not necessarily counting it. Then you get bodybuilders who will just be like, oh yeah, like, 
I never trained to failure, but I, I pushed it hard or um, like, oh, I, I left a little bit there on the table for next time. And these are reps reserved that are leaving. And it's in a sense, a fatigue management tool uh, because we don't necessarily need to push to like maximum fatigue, a failure point every time to see results. We can work within a RER and provide a sufficient stress for an overload for the body to have to adapt to. Um, and that's where it really becomes really helpful as a fatigue management tool uh, where you can kind of program it and things can be a lot more kind of uh, smooth in terms of progressions. Whereas if you just go all out all the time, that has some fatigue cost trade-offs that we can definitely discuss. Yep. And we definitely, I definitely do want to get into that. So oh, people hear RP and they're like, okay, reps in reserve. It's how many reps I had left in the tank, which we can talk about the subjectivity maybe being an issue and how to overcome that, which is definitely a conversation I want to have. How might that differ from RP, which is, you know, right. Rating of perceived exertion on a one to 10 scale, where 10 being, you know, 10 could be equated with failure, right? Going all the way all out. It's a 10 out of 10 difficulty in one, you know, a lot of people want to say that and, and whatever, I don't think it's, just, we're definitely getting into the weeds tiny bit about like why you might want to use one over the other. But I do think that there's <clears throat> some decent arguments for using RIR or RIR versus RP in certain scenarios. So some people would say, okay, an RIR of zero where you are have zero reps in the reserve and you went all the way to technical failure where the next rep would have been, you know, a, a either a no rep or not good quality rep. And an RPE of 10 would be the same thing. Now, I would agree at face value. I think it's totally fine. And we're definitely getting into like some semantic issues here. But like, why you, you have the opportunity. You coach people all the time. Why would you, Why are you using RP, RIR and not RPE? So I used to use RPE. That was because that was the first tool of like a relative intensity tool that was out there. Um, and that was helpful. But taking a set to like a RPE 7 isn't quite as easy in your head as I have three reps left in reserve. Um, I think both of them are subjective, but RPE is a little bit more subjective uh, where it's kind of it is rate of perceived exertion. So it isn't like a one rep in reserve. It is a, I have an RPE nine, which is like, maybe I could have done one more grinder rep or like half a rep. And you can equivalent like a, uh, make it equivocal in terms of like you said a 10 a not a nine a one um then that works okay but like yeah having to think about oh this is a, a nine rp just isn't quite as easy for someone to digest as a trainee i have one rep left in the, in the tank so that's why i moved from rp to rar but i think rp if I was still coaching people for strength um, and powerlifters, I think that's where RP can be more valuable, um, particularly when you're training like under five repetitions. Thinking about RAR when you're under five reps starts to become like a bit confusing. Whereas training to like a an RP nine at a single or an RP seven at a single, that is something powerlifters do regularly. Whereas training at like a three RER with a single, it's kind of like a bit of a conf confusing um, kind of topic there. So I think RP is really good applications for strength sports. Um, RER for like hypertrophy for bodybuilders. It's, it's so just more digestible and easier as a term terminology and something to kind of use practically that uh, I exclusively use RER now. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I wasn't sure if you were going to bring up the powerlifting point in that regard, so I'm glad you did. I definitely agree. I think that once you start thinking at like sub five rep sets, you know, you can have a a four a set of four or a triple or a double that's like a seven uh, RPE, but like that doesn't mean you could have done five, you know, or six. Uh, and sometimes like just like bar speed, 
and how difficult it felt yeah. on a double, you know, just because it was an, it could be an RPE seven. That doesn't mean you could have done three more. It means, hey, this was not that difficult of a double. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think that the, the heavier that the sets get, the more powerlifting style, the more strength application RPE. T- I would probably actually lean over towards RPE more as a it's a more meaningful. It's more uh, it actually tells a more direct like it, it gives you more information in that regard, whereas RIR because of what we know about hypertrophy, which I guess I'll steal this part from you is like, is like, we just, we know that like rep range isn't as important once we want. And even if we're talking about sub five sets, let's just talk a little bit more broadly, like from a hypertrophy standpoint, what matters is getting close to failure and, and an almost a specific distance from failure within, let's say between somewhere between three and five reps, depending on where, who you ask. And so literally what you are trying to do is get a certain number of reps from failure. And so that just translates a little bit more directly to RIR because we know that, hey, okay, the reps that are closer to failure are the stimulative ones. And so somebody might hear that and say, okay, the closer I get to failure, the more gains I'm making and I need to know RIR so that I'm within that that boundary, so I'm within several reps from failure, but why wouldn't I just, why, why add in this layer of subjectivity where I can go to maybe a more objective endpoint, which would be Failure. I mean, I feel like that's that some people some people are going to hear, okay, subjectivity. It's going to take me too much thinking. We're going to talk a little bit about the downfalls in terms of subjectivity and people uh, subjects learning it in the research and stuff like that. But like, why not go to a more objective endpoint, which is just failure? Yeah, it's the, it's a good question because I think that um, objective endpoint is more appropriate for some individuals. I think some people are psychologically wired not to want to have to think too much about their training. Uh, and so they just like the idea of just going in there, just getting it done, knowing that they've gone close enough to failure because they're at failure um, and they couldn't have done any more and they just enjoy that aspect. Uh, and then there are people that maybe haven't learned yet to push themselves. So pulling back um, is difficult for them because they're like, I don't even know where failure is. So there are definitely people who, and I think everyone should regularly take it too close to fail, like if not to failure, um, at least very much close to it. And I think once you've got a level of experience where you have trained to that failure point where you have gone very close, you know, like if I did another rep, that's where I'd start jerking it or, um, I wouldn't be able to like, I could bring that down to my chest, but I wouldn't be able to press it back up once. And, and if you've been training, I think five years, you've definitely got that, you know, after five years of good training, We've been pushing yourself hard. You now know all these things. And that's where using an RER and leaving some reps can be really beneficial. Because like you said there, you can grow from leaving maybe up to five reps in the tank. Now, why would you do that? That's the kind of question. And it's a case of, well, possibly that gives you a better SFR. So a stimulus to fatigue ratio at that moment in time. So for an example, if you do a deload because you've accumulated fatigue and you need to dissipate that so that your performance can come back into place after that deload, like where it's low volume, low intensities, you're not trained to failure. If you go straight to failure, now that's like a big, big stimulus that maybe you didn't need all of that. It's a big then recovery cost, and now you're not able to train as soon. And so that might just not be the best trade-off. Whereas maybe an RP three, four in that context is like, well, it gives you a, a good stimulus because now you're kind of resensitized due to having a deload period. Um, and you don't get huge fatigue costs because you were three to four reps in reserve. It's not that hard. So then you can train again quite soon after. And maybe then you take it to three to two reps in reserve and then you slowly accumulate upwards getting the kind of best stimulus to fatigue cost of the RER through the mesocycle, which for me, 
like programming and periodization for hypertrophy is all about maximizing stimulus for the least, least fatigue. To get stimulus, you have to get fatigue. So it's going to happen. You can't train easy and get stimulus. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to make training easy. We're trying to get the best stimulus for the least fatigue. So we can do as much get, if we get the most stimulus possible with the least fatigue possible, then we're going to be able to do the most, provide the biggest growth stimulus and get the most growth overall. So it's about balancing SFR throughout mesocycles, throughout weeks, throughout kind of macro cycles. Um, and that's where like RER really comes in handy because now you can potentially accumulate a little bit more volume, volume being a key driver for hypertrophy that can be really effective. So there's those kind of pros in terms of like clear hypertrophic benefits. But then also as you get more advanced and you get stronger and on particular lifts, training those to all out failure all the time, just start getting really unreasonable, um, like a deadlift off the floor to failure that if I did that at the start of a session, I wouldn't finish a session. Like none of my, the rest of my session wouldn't go. I'd probably have to take two days off the gym. And that's just not a good stimulus to fatigue kind of trade-off. Yeah. I get a ton of stimulus, the kind of uh, magnitude of stimulus to get from a deadlift to failure is huge, but maybe I get like, I don't know, a hundred stimulus points and I get 500 fatigue points. Whereas I could have done kind of left three reps in reserve and done some leg curls afterwards, done some quad work, got like a thousand stimulus for like a lesser fatigue cost even, and then got back in and accumulated some more stimulus points through the mesocycle. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where the, the utility really comes in. And the good news is, like I said, for people more advanced, you do get better at using reps and reserve. You get way more accurate at it, especially for uh, lower repetition sets. So within like five all the way to 15, you're probably pretty damn precise. 15 plus reps, it probably starts to get kind of, you're a bit less close. Um, but the good news is if you challenge yourself in week one, and that's really what we're trying to do, make sure you're challenged, but not killing yourself every week thereon. If you just make to look things a little bit harder, you add a little bit of load, you add a repetition, then eventually you're going to get into the thick of it, the, the, the best kind of growth zone to be in. And then you've got no concern. So people get worried about, oh, like what if, I don't know, you leave five reps in reserve instead of like three. It's like, well, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be right where you need to be. Um, and then you learn and you logbook, you have your data. So then you finish a mesocycle, everything's at one to no RAR. Now you can basically work backwards from those numbers and start a new mesocycle up where maybe you've got a bit stronger. So you can kind of, but once you've got that data and you keep doing that for a few months, now you're getting really good stimulus fatigue ratio style training. And you've got the confidence that, wow, I've got the logbook data. I know in this final week before the deload, I'm pretty much taking it to my limit. If I just work backwards from that a few reps, then phew, I've, I've got to be in the ballpark zone. I can be confident with that. And, uh, made the games be with you. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of stuff I want to break down there. I want to circle back yeah. to just saying like, okay, so just circling back to the SFR implications of reps and reserve, SFR being stimulus to fatigue ratio, essentially just like how much benefit am I getting for this versus how much fatigue cost am I having to pay for that benefit? And so if you had one set, and I've heard Mike make these analogies and I'm, I'll, I'm just going to steal it, but like if, if you were to have one training session and that was it. And then we were going to get abducted by aliens and you had to be as jacked as possible. And you need to have as you needed to grow as much muscle in this one set. 
in this one workout, yeah, you take everything to failure. You would take everything to failure. You take it beyond failure. You drop sets, mile reps, like assisted eccentrics. Like you would take everything to failure. If you only had to do one workout and you wanted to grow the most from that workout, you'd, do, you'd take everything to failure. You don't train once. You train for weeks. You train another time this week. And then you train another week next week. And you train weeks after that and years after that. And so the, the, there is, you have to take into account what is this costing me. And if you can get, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not, we're going to talk about why you might want to train to failure and what the benefits of that would be and, and how to go about setting up a, mes- a mesocycle. But, you know, the idea of training to failure all the time where you had just said, okay, I'm going to get the most stimulus when I do that. You are, you, if I, you put a gun to my head and say, Hey, a failure set or a two rep and reserve set, which one gives you in a binary yes or no question, which one gives you more stimulus? I'm going to bet the failure set, but it's a vast diminishing return, let's say from two to zero. Um, and so now we have all this layer of subjectivity where, okay, two reps in reserve might be on average pretty similar stimulus to zero reps in reserve, but for less fatigue. So maybe on average, that's a good place to sit. But now we have this issue of like, like I don't know where that is. And so, you know, I'll get, and we can, let's shoot into some common misconceptions and why people might shit on reps and reserve training. Um, where like, you'll, I get this all the time in a Q&A box. Like, why would I, why, you know, how do you know where failure is if you're always training with reps in reserve? And I, you, I'd love to hear you answer that before I give mine. Go ahead. Yeah, I know it's, um, I think anyone, I, it, it's a weird thing where when you use, I don't know what it is about bodybuilding in particular, but it's a very like hardcore thing where even it took a long time for me, but a long time. And I think the industry still isn't there to accept something like flexible dieting, how you can eat like off, like quote unquote off plan foods or dirty foods or whatever the, the kind of bodybuilders would want to call them and incorporate that into a kind of macro diet that overall is a healthy diet as well and see fantastic results. It's there's still bodybuilders out there that are obsessed with eating their kind of clean foods, their chicken and their kind of broccoli and their rice or what have you. And if you try and incorporate something different, it's seen as like, Oh no, that's not hardcore. You're making it easier. Like even if you can get results that way, that's a bad thing because hardcore is better. And I think it's very similar within training where it's just like, they'd always just trained hard and going harder is better. And that's the kind of mentality. Uh, And I think a lot of people do have that single set mindset where they go into one session and they're like, I want to get everything out of this session, go hard or go home. And if like, they, they can't leave anything in the tank, they need to leave feeling like they've drained every muscle, every ounce of, of effort. Otherwise they feel like they've been a waste of space. And I think for a lot of bodybuilders, it's therapy in that sense where they, they kind of need that. Otherwise they're going to do something in the outside world that they, they shouldn't be doing. Um, and I think that's unfortunate uh, because I, well, I think it's it's fine for people to have that mentality. It's it's unfortunate when they then really struggle to allow other individuals to have a different programming philosophy. And that's why I struggle with that I get confused with because I'm like, and you'll be the same as me, Jordan, like you can see what they're doing, why they're doing it, and they're getting results. That's cool. Uh, we can co- totally accept that it makes sense. Like they're training hard, they're doing enough volume, they're going to grow. Totally makes sense. But then it's kind of challenging when they get really upset about other people not following along and kind of being dogmatic and being in their group and their crew, which can be upsetting and it can be kind of 
disconcerting as well. You think you're doing something wrong, even though you have all the knowledge to back it up and the explanation and everything. So I think there is a bit of like just a, a hardcore bodybuilding mentality to why people uh, feel that way. And then also I think some people don't understand like the, the overload threshold and how you don't need to go like all out to kind of see, and they kind of see progressive overload as like a binary thing and an overload is it has to be harder than last time. If you're not doing that, you're not growing. Whereas you can use the same load for the same reps for multiple weeks and it's still a growth stimulus. It's going to take months until it doesn't provide enough of the, an overload for growth. So they get kind of confused by that. And I think a lot of it is application too where they just don't see how, how you getting at three to four or two RER, like it just, they, they get so confused by that. But when you have it in a kind of well planned out schematic kind of overload uh, program, then it becomes really simple. And the more times you run it, like I kind of alluded to before, the better you get at it. And then you get super confident and you're just like, yeah, I want, like you just want to train like that forever. And that's what happened to me. I kind of trained with RER and after a while I ended up understanding it. I was like, Oh, I just do this and like, I make sure week one is hard enough. And then I just make each week a little bit harder. Um, and I can definitely go into more detail about kind of what that might look like. Yeah. And, and let's, and, but it's funny as you missed one of the, you missed like the most obvious answer is that like, if someone's like, Hey, how do you, you know, how do you know what RIR at you're at? If you've never trained to failure, you do train to failure. You do right. go to zero RIR. Yeah. Like people are like, how do you like, it's as if, you know, using RIR means always having reps in reserve. It's not, that's not the case. And so like there's an, I'm going to let you talk about setting up a mesocycle. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how to improve your subjective and maybe pair it with an objective marker of where, what, you know, zero RR or two RR might be, but you do, you do train to zero reps in the reserve. You do go to failure. And so it's like a minute, the minute somebody asks that, I'm like, you just don't, you're just not fully understanding what it is to, what it means to train with RIR. It does not mean to always leave reps in the tank. It means just to be quantifying that relative intensity in some way that helps you assess where you are, gives you a programming, you know, some sort of uh, uh, programming metric to progress with over time. Like it's giving you the tools to add some structure and some, some, some actual like, like marker of progress of relative intensity getting harder over time. And so this, these people are like, what do you, you know, how do you like, how can you stand behind something where you never, you know, how are you going to know what the RIR is if you've never trained to failure? It's like, it's like, yes, I do train to failure. And that, that is how I know the RIR better. <laughs> um, and so let's talk about, let's talk about setting up a mesocycle and, you know, for those of you guys that are maybe unfamiliar, mesocycle just meaning like a block, let's say block of training where you have several weeks of training followed by a deload. We can package those together. We call it a mesocycle. Um, how would you go about setting that up in an optimal setting? And maybe would, would that maybe change or at least the communication of what you're doing change for more novice, more gen pop lifters? Cool. So yeah, just starting with how I, people I generally work with, with how their mesocycles tend to be structured and how mine do as well. And it's like you said that this is a great place to start it because now I can kind of get the, the, the context about how you set it up is we do train to, like, I would never, I personally never train until failure on purpose. I might hit failure and it might just be an accident because I thought I could get a rep and then I, I can't get a rep or I thought I could get a rep and I end up cheating it a little bit. It's not as a good quality repetition. Like I said, I always want the reps to be good quality. I don't want to, kind of do a cheat rep or Russian, Russian eccentric or something like that. 
but basically you're training to that not RAR point, maybe one RAR on some of the big compound lists where it's just like, it's just not worth the risk, but you know, like you could get close enough to, to call it there. So that might be like a, a Romanian deadlift or a good morning where you're just like, if I, I just, I don't know, it's, it's not 50, worth 50, it. I could get that rep or not. It's, I could yeah, die. It's just not worth yeah. it. <laughs> and like you said, from the literature, we don't know that uh, kind of failure or not reps in reserve is any better than two. So, you know, you're probably at least two RAR at that point, even if you could have got that rep and uh, like maybe another one just in case, like it's, it's just not worth the, the, the cost when you are strong and you're at that point and you're doing failure or not reps in reserve across other exercises within your program, like a leg curl for your hamstrings. Like that's totally reasonable and absolutely fine. So you've got all this data in that final week where you've been training to your limit. And so you have load and repetitions go through your deload. Well, let's take a step back. Let's take it. Let's take a step oh, back yeah. to somebody who might not have ever actually gotten that objective data. So now they're starting, you're starting the okay. mesocycle with like, you know, whatever it might be, two to three reps in reserve or with something more specific with exactly three or exactly four. And then I'd love, I want to get to that point where it's like, okay, now I have this, this data to work from, but let's say prior to having that data, how might you, let's say a client comes to you who really wants to get into this is like mentally, intellectually ready for, to sink their teeth into like understanding this better, but they've never actually done that. So you're starting them with something like several reps in the tank to begin. And then what kind of, what would you be telling them towards the end of that mesocycle? Cool. Okay. So we're, yeah, this is, this is a harder sell for someone who is like, Oh, how do you know where you are? Right. But for someone who has a general, they, they understand RER, but they're new to using it. Correct. I'll kind of describe what three to four, like I'll, I want them at about three to four RER for the big compound lifts, two to three for the smaller isolation lifts. And that's not because I think isolation lifts, you can take them closer to failure and get more benefit. It's basically because you can probably push isolation lifts. Like it, it's safer and also, um, where you think you're at like a four area, you might be at like a five, just because an isolation lift, you can grind those out a little bit better. So for my personal training, I'm just taking every lift that first week until the point at which the rep gets like noticeably hard. And for some exercises, it will look a bit different to others. So it might look like I'm at like a two RR on something like a, a machine press, but I know I can grind out a machine press. Whereas for like a bent over row or a lap pull down, my three to four RR might look like a six to someone, but I'm like, no, if I like, you know, momentum is going to come massively in, you're going to start using other muscle groups. So I know myself, but for a newbie, they might not know that. So what I'm getting them to do is take it to the point. And sometimes I won't even write in three to four or two to three RAR. I'll just say, take your reps to a point where they start to get really hard in terms of the bar speed slows down. You have to really concentrate to get that next rep out, but you know, you've got more in the tank, take it to that point. And they might be at two or one RR, they might be at three or five. I'm not worried about it as long as they've kind of gone that ballpark zone. And then I get video footage from them as well. So I can assess that for myself because sometimes their technique is like, they've already gone. I've had people who are like, they're past not RR. And I right. think they're at like four reps in reserve. And I'm like, no, 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 you're so you've swung the last three reps. Um, they're like, you're pushing too hard. And there's people who have been training a long time. They, they, they really want to make sure they're doing RAR right, who have been in that position where they've been questioning themselves like, oh, I don't train hard enough. Four RARs should be really hard. And I'm like, it should be hard. It shouldn't be like destroying yourself. So there's those individuals and there's some people where I watch them and they do a rep, they do a rep, they do a rep. And I'm like watching for more. And then they stop and I'm just like, 
oh, why'd you stop? <laughs> um, or I can tell that they're not like bracing on a squat or on a hack squat. And I'm like, you've got to brace. Otherwise, you, you can't be training hard if you're not like bracing and really taking care of your breathing. And they're kind of looking around as they're doing their set. Like, uh, concentrate. You've got to be in the zone. So I'm looking for quality intent from that week one. And that really forms the foundation for me because if they get that right or roughly right, and we might have to make some amendments where they're pushing too hard or too easy. Next week on, you just add a repetition or a little bit of load. And by doing that, you're getting yourself automatically closer to failure. Because if you add a rep, you're probably removing one rep in reserve. You're not going to adapt that quickly. You're not getting stronger on a week by week basis at this point for a lot of people. You might be. And then that's great. Even if you can, then you ride out for as long as you can. Add a rep add a bit of load, assuming your technique is quality, um, assuming you're not doing anything, anything funky, all else being equal, add a rep, add a bit of load, add rep or load, or it can possibly both in some circumstances, you're going to be able to do that until you can't. And then, like you said, you've hit that wall, you've hit that naught one uh, failure point, depending on kind of the lift and um, everything along those lines. And now you have all that data, that amazing logbook data to be able to be like, ah, oh, I started here, man, I was way too far from failure because I was managed to do all of this in the end. Or maybe you barely progressed a lift and you're like struggling every week. You're like, yeah, I, I went too hard week one. Let's dial that back a little bit. And then every mesocycle, you get this new data and you can keep going every single time. Um, and once you've done it once, I mean, the, the, the future is much, much easier and you know way more where you need to be. I always found that what's cool is that it's a, lot, a lot of my clients, probably every single one of them have never trained with RER and then they get their program and I have a little video explaining how I want them to kind of assess their first week reps in reserve and then almost not think about it again and just try and add a little bit of load yeah. or an extra rep. It's like, hey, let's shoot for this first week might require because you've never trained with RER, we have no prior real data. Like this first week might take some real thinking about where you are in terms of reps in reserve. But after that, yeah. We're gonna try and get it as close as we can to three or four, let's say two to four, wherever, depending on exercise selection, depending on length of the mesocycle. Um, and then after that, you just don't really think about it again. And we're just gonna add a little bit of load or a little bit of, of an extra rep until you can't. And what what I find really cool is that like, I'll have a client who's really nervous about having hit that like perfect two or three reps in reserve or two to four reps in reserve. And the truth is it doesn't really matter because if you are way too far away, well then like you said, every week you're adding a little bit of load, a little bit of uh, uh, an extra rep and you will eventually travel into what is now more optimal. And so you always have three options. You either started too far away from failure and you will have maybe a longer mesocycle or a normal size mesocycle and just learn from it. And it's not the end of the world. Or you you nail it the first time, right? And, and you have the perfect mesocycle right out of the gate. Or you started too close to failure, like you said, and you end up not being able to add reps and maybe you do you know, catch a little bit of overreaching towards the end. And, you know, uh, that's still a really great learning experience. So I always find that like, it is just in the same as if you take on a client and you don't really have a lot of good data from their calories prior to, to meeting you, you're like, yeah, we can make an estimation, but you know, what's going to be really great 30 days of weigh-ins and calories. And so it's like, yeah, you know, maybe you've never trained reps in reserve, but like, let's get you in the ballpark. Let's use a progression model that just has you getting a little bit closer to failure each week. And then we assess that data at the end of four to six weeks. And I always find it's like, just take a breather. It's not the, like training the RIR can be overwhelming a little bit in the beginning. Cause you're like, a lot of times I'll have clients who hit the same numbers, the same amount of reps across all the sets. And it's like 15, 15, 15. And I'm like, yeah, you know, for whatever. It's no big deal where you and I would definitely like do a small giggle of like, okay, like that's impossible to have the same reps in reserve across all the sets, but no big deal. But like 
it's not as scary once you realize, hey, just get in the ballpark of where I'd like you to start, which is in that two to four probably range. Let's add a little bit of load, an extra rep each week until you can't, then we deload, and then we have this amazing data set where this is where variation, I think, is like gets a little bit of like dichotomous from what might be best for goals. If you have a ton of variation and you're like, okay, cool, I just did these, you know, six leg exercises this last mesocycle, and we're gonna do six totally new exercises next mesocycle, it's like, okay, now you're just wasting what might be helping you in terms of being a little bit more objective. So let's say I'll give you an example. Let's say you're doing leg press, hack squat and, and leg extension, whatever, in one block. And then you have all this great data. You got yourself all the way to like zero or one RIR and you have a really good objective spot of where that is. And then you go do, you know, just three other leg quad exercises, you're doing walking lunges and split squats and, and something else, and sissy squats or something. And then now I'm now when you start that next mesocycle, you have to then again, subjectively kind of guess where you're at. And like you and I have talked about, it's like most people aren't really great at doing that at first, but what can be really beneficial, and you had alluded to this a couple of times already, is like, let's say you did like press, let's say just pick one exercise. So you did like press and you started at 10 reps at hundred pounds and you did 11 reps and 12 reps and 13 and 14 each week adding a rep. And then you got to 15, it was really close to failure. You just, you and your coach decide the mesocycle is over. And then you, let's say you keep leg pressing again. And now you know that you did hundred pounds for 15 at about zero or one rep in reserve. And your coach says, okay, we're gonna do leg press, 10 to 15 reps. And you're gonna start at two reps or three reps in reserve. And you might be like, oh my God, I don't know what that is. And it's like, well, you kind of do because you can look back at your last mesocycle and say, oh, I did 15. So it's pretty reasonable that maybe 13 is about in that two to three rep in reserve. So now we took this subjective concept that somebody's gonna have to walk up to the gym and just fucking feel it and said, okay, yeah, there's a subjective nature to it. There is, but there's also some level of actually just getting that objective like peak week data of like, here are all my numbers at zero, one rep in reserve. If I do these exercises again, and I took two reps off these numbers, that's pretty damn close to where we wanna start or two, three, depending on whatever. Um, and so I, I always find that to be like, you know, when we're in that first mesocycle, like just get, just get kind of close. Let's add a rep. Let's add some load for the first, you know, every week as you can. And then let's sit down at the end, look at it and be like, Hey, if we're keeping a lot of exercises the same, which that's not a discussion we're going to have today about how to keep exercises in or not, but let's say you keep a decent amount of exercises the same. You're going to be able to really use that objective data of that peak week and set yourself up really nicely with some goals in that week one. And now you've taken this subjective concept of like feeling it when I get close to failure, you've layered on some level of objectivity that really like, for me, I, I subject, I, I've been doing this for, I've been working with Ryan, obviously full disclosure, I work with, with one of Steve's coaches, um, you know, for, for two years now. And, and I still would just prefer to be objective about it, you know, and there's, I definitely feel more comfortable now than I did. Um, and I think just to top that off, I think we, we would agree that like in the research, one of the main critiques of RIR is that we suck at knowing where we are in RIR. And there's like, you know, the main study that everyone references where people were on average, like between six and 12 reps away from where they thought they were. Like I have two issues with that one. Like that's just the first time they ever did it. And even if that person was six reps shy of failure or six, six reps shy of where they thought they were, they would eventually by adding load or reps, eventually get into that place where they need to be, then we would assess. And over the course of those many weeks, they would have learned a ton subjectively, but we'd also get that objective data. So I think it's, a, dude, so what, how is the critique of something that you suck at first? You suck at everything at first and you get better with it over time. So that is not a critique of it. Um, 
And so, yeah, just wanted to say that you get, you get better at it subjectively, but you also, like Steve and I were just saying, you get that objective data in those peak weeks where you do take things to failure so that you can set yourself up with like really good objective data going into the next mesocycle. Very, very well explained and well said. Yeah, I think the when people reference that study, it's just, you also look at the people who have done it and they're like complete newbies. And I think most people would recommend as a newbie, like you don't just train with reps and, resolve, reps and reserve all the time. You would push them harder so they can learn their limits. Whereas most people complaining about like using reps and reserve are like quite advanced, like bodybuilders who have trained to failure their whole life. So they'd probably be great candidates for knowing exactly where they are in a set. Um, and then the papers that look at more advanced trainees, they are really good. Advanced trainees are great at assessing it. And I'd love a study actually on what we described there where those individuals maybe were that far away from failure. But if we ran them through a mesocycle, like we said, maybe two like that, see the improvement in their RAR estimations from meso one to meso two, I bet it would just be like, now they're like within 95% of their accuracy. It's like, well, now they have data that they can base that off. Uh, and no wonder they're way better. And like you said, you suck at everything at first. Yeah. Uh, you need somewhere to start. Sure. Yeah. I just always thought that that was a very weak critique. I was like, okay, they suck now. And just because they suck now doesn't mean this is a bad like trajectory for them to go about learning this new thing. It's like, okay, they suck at assessing RIR. So just go to failure all the time. Like kind of binary nonsense is that it's like just one all the way over here at failure, which maybe that maybe you might have a different problem of novices who don't have the technique, uh, like motor patterns ingrained of like going to failure Oh, it's like, okay, you can't, don't do RIR because you're a noob. So you go to failure all the time, where, which you're really going to fuck up because you don't have these motor patterns yeah. really ingrained and you can't grind out squats and RDLs with good technique and you're fucking yourself up on that end. And so I always thought that like, it, you could have that critique, but that doesn't mean, first of all, you can have that critique, but I would have, I would take issue with that. But you know, that doesn't mean if you have that critique that the opposite thing is what you must do. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Turning the page on RAR, you've been, I've been following you guys for a long time and I've listened to your podcast for a very long time. You've had some amazing guests on. Um, and I think you sold yourself short. I think, yes, it's a lot of, fat, there's definitely fat loss and muscle gain and com competitor stuff, but you got, you hit a, a, a really wide range of stuff, behavior change, sleep. And so um, just like overall optimization of health and yeah. performance. And so I think you, you sold yourself short. It's definitely a more wide ranging podcast. So definitely check it out if you guys haven't. Um, but I'm curious, I know from having done this podcast for a short, I don't know what episode this is, maybe 55 or something, that like they're just having, I started this selfishly to have people like yourself on, to have, you know, other people, uh, uh, like I had Alan Aragon, some just whatever, a whole host of people that I wanted to talk to. Um, but it's definitely helped me expose myself to not just in differing of opinions, but just new things. And so I'm curious, you know, whether it's from having people on the podcast or just being in, like ingrained in the industry and plugged in, um, what are things that you might've changed your mind about or learned over the last couple of years, like more in the recent sense, it's kind of changed how you do things. Cool. So yeah, this is a good question because I think one thing the podcast has definitely taught me is like, it's okay not to have like a way, um, actually it's good not to be dogmatic as a coach, like, uh, clients will ask questions. And a lot of the time there is not a hard and fast rule. Like they want to do something maybe differently to how I've programmed. And I think there'll be a lot of coaches out there that would be like, no, like I'm your coach for a reason. We're doing this. And sometimes I have to put my foot down and be a bit like, like you're just asking to change too many things. It's just unnecessary. Like I can just see that they're, 
I don't know, one of those clients who just like things being changed all the time. Whereas in some instances, I'm like, if that provides you a better result or a better outcome that feels better to you, whatever, I don't have a good reason. We can't do that. So cool. Let's do that. And I've actually got way more confident in just the fact that we know so much less. I'm confident that there's a lot of things that can work and that's one of them that can work. And so if you have like a perfect particular affiliation with that as a client, let's do it. Cause I think that's going to provide a better result or outcome. An example of this for me would be something like, um, refeeds or diet breaks when they first kind of got spoken about, uh, I was like a big advocate, particularly of, uh, diet breaks, but refeeds. I was never particularly that fond of, but I never really kind of used uh, apart from, I, I just use them. So refeeds, I wouldn't really apply them to clients and diet breaks. It would be like every single deload they took within a cutting phase to maintenance just as a standard. And I didn't really think about it. Um, I didn't really think those things through enough and kind of have nuance there. Whereas now it's a case of I'm seeing more utility and refeeds. Um, after having spoken to, um, some of the 3DMJ guys, Brian minor, they came on the podcast, debated refeeds with, uh, Mena Henselman's and Jackson Pios. And I was like, huh, you've opened my eyes and my perspective to a few things here. And I've had clients who like refeeds and I now apply them with them and they get great results. Whereas I have other clients who just don't get on with them. And I'm like, well, what, what's the real kind of kicker is we need to create an energy balance on average at the end of the day, we can have higher and lower days, or we can have average calories. As long as we're doing what we need to at the end of the day, we're going to get there. So let's do things that suit their preferences. And we don't have good data either way to say one superior to the other. So it, it's things like that. I just always wanting to keep an open mind and the, the podcast forces you to do that because new information comes out. Uh, you talk to someone new with a, a slightly different perspective on things and you just realize how, uh, I think you said it earlier where you're like, depending on who you talk to, you leave, you can leave anywhere between five and three reps in reserve. And I'm sure there are people that would say you have to be at least three reps in reserve. And there's, pro well, there's probably people that say you have to train to failure to grow, but there's people who will say you can leave five, maybe even more than five. I'm sure there's people that even have read data and support that notion. Um, so there is quite a lot of different viewpoints and there's not anything that there's very few that are absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And that's the beauty of being kind of evidence-based and, the beauty for us is we can interview these smart people and kind of almost pick and choose what we feel like suits our clients, suits the kind of the results. And we can experiment and see what um, leads to what we want to happen. And that's the most important thing. Like what's actually the outcome you're getting. It doesn't matter what you're programming. Like it might be on paper, the most optimal thing, but if you're not getting the outcome you want, it's, it's no good. So you might try some things that don't know, someone in the industry might disagree with who's really smart, but if it gets an outcome, then who are they to say that it's the wrong thing to be doing? Uh, it, it's, it's challenging there. So I would say on the podcast for itself, you mentioned sleep. That's an area that I've got way more invested in. Um, I understand to a small degree, but like a lot more than I ever used to many years before. Um, and it's a, it's a huge and really complex area and it impacts, like you said, health. Uh, well-being and bodybuilding and it, it's huge uh, so i'm excited to learn more about that and never take sleep for granted and then uh, refeeds that's just a, a recent one because of the the kind of um the study that came out of bill campbell's lab which i think was almost like two years ago now but it was like the first bodybuilding specific refeeding study where they had five days 
deficit a two-day refeed and then seeing all the different perspectives come from that where some people are like oh yeah this kind of ticked off the boxes i, I thought refeeds always worse and then other people were like mm, some of the data looks a bit suspicious to me and it just brought a huge conversation around the topic of refeeds so i was like ah like there, there's clearly some there's just not one right answer here and there's something i'm definitely a tool in my toolbox that i might use with some clients so that's been quite kind of refreshing in that sense um, it can be challenging at times being in the evidence-based industry because you, there are no black and white answers. And as a, a coach, you sometimes want that because it makes your life simpler. And sometimes, depending on the client, some clients like a black and white answer. Um, but I think probably for you, Jordan, and definitely for me, the people I work with really appreciate that kind of nuance, non-dogmatic, staying up to date and being able to have a, a chat with me because sometimes I'll have clients uh, who don't even want to do reps and reserve or they're like, I don't like three to four. Can we just stick at two or start at two and then progress from there? And I'm like, we absolutely can. It's not my preferred way of doing things for this, this, this reason, but we can still get results and let's, let's see it out. Um, and then we do that. So yeah, the, the podcast is great and I hope I can continue to keep doing it and keep finding things to talk about and new guests to bring on that can be challenging sometimes, but uh, it's something I'm really grateful to have started and continue to do. Yeah. Excellent. Oh my God. A ton of stuff there. I think the, the <laughs> one thing I took at least from an overarching perspective is like just maybe coming from it. And I feel like I was the whole time I was just thinking about the Dunning Kruger effect of like the whole time, like something that may have changed at some point was peaking in your, in how sure you were about everything and final, and then getting to a point of like having talked to so many people where you're just, the more you expose yourself to different viewpoints, the more you realize yeah. that like there's so many ways to skin the cat and that like success does leave clues and there are people doing things different ways and getting great results. The interesting part is there are a lot of people out there who are, are very case closed. You know, it's this way, this is the way to do it. And so I think those people are important to learn from, but it's difficult to sit there sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult to sit there and not be that kind of person because that sort of voice that sort of like certainty does really well in the industry. You know what I mean? It, it, it's con it's controversial. You have clients who really buy into it. Um, it makes you sound like you absolutely know what you're talking about. And sometimes it's tough to be like, for my clients, you know, honestly, I think I have a, a lot of the similar feedback of clients who have been like, hey, I appreciate the, the fact that you're like, hey, this is what we think. These are your options. These might be the pros and cons of those options. And here's what it might look like six months from now if you do these things it's up to you sort of mentality. Like, this is what we know. This is what we don't know for sure. But it is sometimes difficult because there are a lot of people on, I have a couple of people who come immediately to mind of like very strong voice about certain things. Like very like, this is it. This is the way. And it does really well in today's age. And people really latch onto that because they they think your certainty is, you know, that that gives them security of, of, of knowing that this is the right way. But I agree with you 100%. I'd rather be, I'd rather deal with a little bit of like, not having that voice to be able to just maybe give a little bit more of an individualized approach to clients who maybe that thing doesn't really work for. I always feel like you're gonna, even in a, even in a world where, why I, why I love online coaching is because I get to put out a vibe. I get to put out me and people who are attracted to that and who who jive with that and who understand the way, the way I'm speaking or what I'm talking about, they will find me. And so a lot of the people that I'm coaching are already maybe hiring me because they appreciate that voice, you know? And so I definitely, that is why I love online coaching because you'll be able to find people that you really vibe with really well. Um, but yeah, I definitely do sometimes, you know, it's sometimes nice to, to just wish that it was just, this is the way, but it's just not. And so you have to take a little bit more care of your words and, and how you explain things. And 
just the definitive nature and the absolute nature of what you're what you're explaining. So yeah, I thought I wrote a couple down and maybe you can just touch on maybe if they've had a similar impact. I thought the die break one was totally one we were going to talk about, which is great. The Jackson PL study and then um, also the Bill Campbell refeeds in a similar light in a similar light, obviously that those things being kind of the same refeeds and die breaks, but in different length of time with maybe different varying degrees of you know, further benefit after the diet break of refeed is over. I also think that they're like right now, like the biomechanics side of things is booming. Like coach Kasim and a lot of them are like just really taking it, taking a lot of like what we thought we were doing super correctly and just saying, Hey, okay. Like there's a couple things that like biomechanically don't make sense. And so that's, I just finished uh, two of his courses. And so, you know, there's definitely, oh, wow. is definitely a, a, a lot of that going on right now of like, you know, maybe bodybuilders haven't trained their lats in the last 20 years, you know? Um, and so that's definitely something that I've changed a little bit on, which has been good. I think it's good to grow. Um, and so that's been, that's been really good. A couple other ones, one of them for me, and I know you'll resonate with this is that like the, if I'm torn between two options that I think physiologically might be on the same level in terms of optimality, I think, is this standardizable and is this trackable is an independent variable that I think is valuable. Like, a variable that I think is valuable. I think like sometimes there's, okay, this sounds like, you know, partial reps, let's say. Partial reps can be, I think that there's a lot of people, Coach Kasim even, and some of the other people that are like, okay, like partial reps absolutely have a place and they totally do. And physiologically, you could probably make an argument, but then, you know, what is the cost of reaching for that small, potentially microscopic bit of optimality if it's really, really tough to standardize and track and maybe even mentally digest and stick to for the more novice person, even myself, I find that to be difficult. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, and then some people be like, okay, you, you trying to standardize and track everything might take you further away from what is physiologically optimal. But the point isn't about what's, the point is getting the best result. And sometimes something being trackable and standardizable, like, uh, you know, I'll have clients who, um, you know, let's say you're doing an RDL and the best, the best physiological way to do an RDL would be to stop at the, at the moment where you are done with hip flexion and don't go any further. But I'll have clients who are like just, you know, they're not gonna be able to really subjectively feel where that is. And so sometimes elevating the floor with a pair of plates, giving them something to just very gently touch at the bottom so they standardize each rep, each range of motion for them, while somebody else might be like, oh, they're generating momentum off the plates, like that's not physiologically optimal. It's like, okay, but they're going to the same place for each rep and not having to think about when am I done with hip flexion every rep? And then all of a sudden you watch the video back and the first 10 reps are good range of motion, the last five reps are half range of motion. That to me has become something where it's like, hey, just thinking about how can I standardize this? How can I track this? Because that in and of itself over the long term might be a variable that's super meaningful. I can imagine that you agree with that. Yeah, this is something I was thinking of when we were talking about the progression through a mesocycle in terms of adding reps and adding load. Because unfortunately, I think what happens for, and this happened to me when I would train to kind of failure or to my limit each time would my I'd want to progress. Like I was like, I need to add load or at least a rep each week. And so my form would change. Um, I'd stand a bit more upright on an event of a row, or I'd swing it a little bit more. I wouldn't touch the floor. I wouldn't touch my chest anymore. Or like on a lap pull down, I'd pull to my chest and then I'd pull to my chin and then I'd pull to my eyebrows. And suddenly it's like, well, are you actually progressing or are you just making things harder? Like, and, and not even 
productively harder you're just making them like feel harder you're like they're harder because like you you're you're physically working harder but you're not necessarily getting the the benefit for your muscle groups there and the discussion around partial reps is interesting because i had a client ask about on a lap pull down like sometimes he feels like he's got more in the tank but he can't touch his touch his chest anymore could he continue to do repetitions until like it was to his i don't know partial because he's still getting the heavy stretch there and I, I discussed with him, I was, I was like, I think you can, but the, the difficulty is going to be standardizing. What that. do you write and down? You know, 10 yeah. to the chest, two to the chin, three to the, the my, my, to, my tooth, and then two to my eyebrows. Yeah, totally. And then what's the, the upside? Because there's that one study that says like the partial reps in certain areas and like stretch under load seems to be beneficial. We've got a bunch of other studies that suggest full range of motion is the way to go. So I'm going to say probably we want to kind of use the, the full range of motion there. So there can be, and that's where being evidence-based is tricky because I think some people see evidence-based as like any new study that comes out, like jump at it and apply it. But it, it's not that case. It's a case of we have like Jackson's one good diet break study. We have like Bill Campbell's one good refeed study. There's one study. Yep. Like, they're very good, yep. but it's one thing. Totally. And people are trying to apply that all over the place. Like before that, before Jackson Pierce's study on diet breaks, like I was applying, like it was obese, like female obese data, a lot of it. Whereas Matador. Like, yeah. Exactly. So I can't like, yeah. I'm following it. Every client must follow the, the Matador kind of uh, protocol. It's sure. like, uh, that, that would be the wrong way to be evidence-based. So it's just about kind of recognizing this, this is out there and then slowly picking and choosing bits and applying it where you think appropriate. And a great example of this is with Kasim, who I really respect. Um, he's quite a diversive figure. I think, um, some ways really positive, some ways maybe a little bit challenging. Um, but some kind of uh, concepts he's put out and some of his, uh, like lat training in specific areas and like certain exercises, I've slowly tried incorporating bits that I think are like really legit. And some of them have worked really well. Other ones I've been a bit like, mm, I'm not sure about this. And it's just, it's the same with like totally. smart people, new studies, like kind of as an evidence-based practitioner, just don't be closed-minded to them, but don't just be like, oh, Kasim's obviously the new guy on the block. I got to follow everything he does at N1 and like all my programming is now changing. It's like, well, you're getting result, great results with all your programming before what changed. So it's just about like you're doing a great job, like going and doing his and, and studying under him. But it's not like you're his disciple now. It's sure, a case of, totally. cool, I learned some really great stuff here. That's going to complement a lot of the stuff I was already doing. Now I'm a better coach. So that that's awesome. Absolutely. Cool. We're coming up on an hour, Steve. Why don't you drop a line, tell people where they can find you, and I'll let you get on, get on your way here. Awesome. So, yeah, I'm uh, revivestronger.com is our website. So, you can get our coaching. We have a member site over there, um, podcast is over there, or you can find our podcast on YouTube or on any podcast provider, the Revive Stronger podcast. And I'm on Instagram at Revive Stronger. That's where I'm most present if people want to kind of see what I'm up to. Should be competing this year and recovered soon as well. So I should be getting pretty, pretty shredded. That's awesome. It'd be fun to watch and I hope you feel better, dude. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.